I'm Sherry Minnelli. And I'm Diane Downey. We're from EarthFriendlyHomeowner.com. And we love healthy soil, clean water, fresh air, and growing healthy food. We're inspired to help heal our local community as well as our planet. Welcome to the Earth Friendly Podcast. My name is Diane Downey, and today I'm joined by Judith Schwartz, author of one of my very favorite books, Cows Save the Planet. Judith's latest book is Water in Plain Sight, Hope for a Thirsty World, and it's now on my list of books that make the soil-water-landscape connection so much easier to understand. So welcome, Judith. Thanks so much. Um, Judith, what inspired you to write this book? So as you mentioned, I had just written a book about soil, and there was so much that I was learning that I felt compelled to explore. And one of those was the connection between soil and water uh, because, um, you know, I'm not telling you something you don't know because you are in California, but with the California drought that has been happening in the last few years, I was struck by how the emphasis was continually on what was coming down or not coming down from the sky. In other words, the focus was all about that drought equals um, a lack of rainfall, but no one was talking about land degradation and soil degradation and how important, how, how by we can address the drought, the symptoms of what we call a drought by working to restore our soil so that the rainfall that we get is more effective. And that makes a huge, huge difference because even in low rainfall years in California, so much water is wasted because it's not being kept in the system. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think you mentioned Brad Lancaster in your book. Um, And one of the lines from Brad is that um, even over in Tucson, where they get 11 inches of rain a year on average, they get more than enough rain to support the city, but it just gets washed away so quickly. Exactly, exactly. So uh, it's, you know, one thing to keep in mind is that when we as humans built our great cities, or even not so great cities, you know, but, you know, we started, (laughs) you know, the built infrastructure, our urban infrastructures, the goal was to get rid of water because you didn't want, you know, water standing around. That was a nuisance. It interfered with, with city life. So that's what people were thinking, and that's what our infrastructure and our water systems are, are designed to do, to, you know, just like whoosh the water away. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that made sense when the population was smaller and when, we had what seemed like plentiful water, and now we see that that is no longer the case. We're using up groundwater resources and, you know, and draining the Colorado River and all of that. Um, so it's time that we can rethink how we use water. Fortunately, there are ways, as you mentioned, by rainwater harvesting, which is what Brad Lancaster does, and he has you know, some wonderful, wonderful material about this. There are so many ways that we can do that, and in this book I had the chance to travel extensively and find people that, were, that had ways of building water security and also really insightful ways, uh, uh, um, ways that that water connects with our other problems, our other challenges, so that enhancing 
our water supply, we are also addressing biodiversity loss and climate change and all of that. So, um, yeah, that, so, so the other motivation writing this book was the connection between climate and water because when we generally we understand that there's a connection between climate and water, but it tends to go in one direction, namely that climate change will put added stress on water sources throughout the world. And that, of course, is very concerning and that creates anxiety, which makes us worry about water more and everything. But what we're neglecting is the other side of that equation, and that is the effect that water has on climate. And that, to me, is so exciting because we have just not explored this Mm -hmm. because working with the water cycle we can promote cooling you know in many many different Mm -hmm. aspects and so yeah I mean we haven't even touched on that but it it certainly makes sense because as one of my sources in the book an Australian soil scientist microbiologist named Walter Yenna um, he said he pointed out that like 90% of climate is driven by hydrological processes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like once you realize that, it's like, oh, oh, that makes total sense. And mm-hmm. also water is the dominant greenhouse gas. There's like m- many tens of times water vapor in the atmosphere at any time compared to CO2. Not that CO2 isn't a problem, but, you know, in, in water is our opportunity to address climate change as well. Yeah, I love that. Um, I love that you made the connection between water and carbon and the carbon cycle. Can you talk a bit more about that connection for me? Um, yeah, yeah. So, so again, when we talk about carbon, we're often thinking about – carbon is often referred to as a pollutant because we are mm-hmm. thinking about – that there is too much carbon in the atmosphere, and we associate that with the burning of fossil fuels. But there's another element there that we don't really talk about, and that's that much of that carbon, um, probably most of it over time, and about a third of it at this po- per, per year about the, at this point, actually comes from the soil. So the flip side of our... problem of too much CO2 in the atmosphere is that there's not enough carbon in the soil. And Mm -hmm. the reasons that we want carbon in the soil are, I mean, that's where it belongs. That's where it came from. You know, there are many reasons we want carbon in the soil because it promotes fertility and it um, feeds microorganisms that then um, trade, that then offer nutrients to our plants and helps build plants, but one really, really important reason is that carbon in the soil allows that land to hold water. It makes it a sponge. So if you have land that has no carbon, let's say that it's been farmed, you know, like the, the, life, the, the life of it has been farmed out, um, you know, and there's, there's very little carbon, then it has that kind of, you know, dead, sandy not like sand, but just sort of dirt feeling, um, that water, like if you, if you did a little experiment and you poured water on it, it, it doesn't hold water. Whereas if you mm-hmm. have, you know, like, like nice, rich soil, you know, when you hold it in your hand and you just know that that's like, that, that your plants, are, your garden is going to like that soil, that, that's the soil that can hold water because it has more carbon in it. And... 
by restoring the soil, like every 1% increase in soil organic matter, which is mostly carbon, represents an additional 20,000 gallons per acre that that land can hold. I mean, that is huge, the implications of that. 20,000 gallons. 20,000. I mean, it it varies. I've seen more and I've seen less, but, you know, that's pretty much a good ballpark figure. Yeah, absolutely. And I I say in our classes that for every 1% uh, of organic matter you put in the soil, you can hold four parts of water or more. And as we saw at this urban soil conference um, last year, the figure could be up to like five, seven, eight times as much. So it's, it's amazing. To get to get carbon back in the soil is is so vital. Absolutely. Yeah, so, yay, good. All right. So you travelled quite a ways for this book. I'm a, I'm really loving the little global journey that I'm going on here. Um, I was touched by the ranchers in Mexico. Can you um, talk to me a little bit more about those guys that were doing the regenerative agriculture? Absolutely. Yeah, so, so this happened serendipitously, as, as most things that yield good stories do. I was con- mm-hmm. After I wrote Cow Save the Planet, I was contacted by a rancher in Mexico named Alejandro Cabrillo, and he said, I know you would really like to, you'd be really interested in what we're doing down here. So, you know, a few Skype conversations and a little bit of research later, um, my husband and I, fly down to El Paso mm-hmm. and then and then drive out to Chihuahua, Mexico. Um, and it was really quite extraordinary. What they're doing is that a group of ranchers are working with bird conservation organizations to create and restore habitat for endangered migratory grassland birds. Now, what's so exciting about this is that this is not the kind of partnership that you would expect to happen. You know, Mm -hmm. bird conservation people and cowboys, ranchers. So Mm -hmm. so what, what happened is that Okay, this is, we're talking about a huge, huge area. Chihuahua is a huge state. It might even be the largest state in Mexico. Um, You know, a lot of land. And this was real cowboy country historically. And the land has degraded because mostly of of faulty um, grazing practices. Okay, mm-hmm. so this is this is often what happens is that when you have enough land, and it's in it's in fabulous shape. It you don't notice at first that you're kind of trashing it, and it takes a long time. By the time you realize, like, oh, you know, our mm. our animals have have no forage, we have to start supplementing. You know, then you get this negative spiral, and and ranchers go out of business, and 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 all that. But these ranchers practice holistic planned grazing which mm-hmm. is a restorative process so it's it, they it manage the movement of the cattle in a way that it it basically mimics the great herds of bison and and antelope that used to rove those those same areas so they so they were getting so much grass whereas the the ranchers that were failing 
And unfortunately, because the ranchers were failing, they were selling land to Mennonite farmers who practice really um, chemical-intensive, very, very kind of like aggressive uh, kind of farming because these Mennonite farmers come from Europe originally. And mm-hmm. so they think like, okay, here's this land. It's like, you know, prairie, grasslands, let's plow it up because the soil is rich. And, you know, they're going to... Anyway, they're having a lot of problems because of I'm all sure. the chemicals that they're yeah. using. So so now back to the birds, there are these grassland birds that migrate between the Great Plains of the U.S. in the summer, and then they actually spend seven months of the year in this valley, this grassland valley in the Chihuahuan Desert grasslands. And when those when those ranches are failing, there's no, there's no tall grasses. So there's, there's no food for the birds. There's no protection habitat, you know, like the protection from right. predators. So that's a problem. So the bird conservation people saw these ranches and they said, oh my gosh, this is the land that the birds need. You know, and the birds were, there were, of course, birds there. Of course, the birds have found it before we, you know, we humans mm-hmm. who, you know, are looking for them have. Um, so, so they're working to try to create more habitat and, and get more ranchers to see that this is, that what's good for the land is good for their own businesses and good for the environment and what's good for biodiversity is also good for what they're trying to do. So it's just, you know, and, and of course one of the effects was that they could keep water on the land because when you're losing grass and you have a lot of bare soil that's mm-hmm. drying out, it's oxidizing because uncovered soil is losing carbon and it's going into the atmosphere, then they can't hold water. But the ranchers right. that are practicing restorative grazing, but of course their neighbors don't understand this. So mm-hmm. um, Alejandro would tell me how a, his neighbor would say, well, you get more water over there. Well, of mm-hmm. course, the truth is that they're able to k- keep the water on their land. Right. right. That, that's interesting, isn't it? I think you also touch in, in the book, you, you tell us about trees and the ability for trees to actually um, attract and retain, retain rain. Um, Right. Which is fascinating. Right. So that dynamic works on many levels. So trees hold, mm-hmm. they stabilize soil so that you don't have erosion and, and the soil kind of washing out and all those problems and silting mm-hmm. up rivers. So they, they, they are very stabilizing in that way. They're holding moisture. But another, another thing is that they're, well, yeah, there are a lot of dynamics that, you know, the, like it, when, when a tree gets rained on, it's kind of like the water gets meted out slowly because it's mm-hmm. like go, moving through the leaves. But also trees are constantly transpiring. And this is important because when people talk about the connection between uh, trees and climate change, Trees are looked at as kind of reservoirs of carbon, you know, which is true as Mm -hmm. long as the tree is living and growing. Um, But even, but more significantly is this transpiration, which is a cooling process. This transpiration is the upward movement of water through plants. So Mm -hmm. 
like a tree is transpiring a tremendous amount of water. And when you have a forest and like a rainforest, like the Amazon, the, the transformation of energy that is happening with those, with those, that all those trees transpiring is extraordinary. So when I say it's a, a cooling process, it, it, it goes like this. So when you have solar radiation that comes down on like pavement or bare soil with no life in it, then like it becomes sensible heat. I mean, you know how it feels when you mm-hmm. walk on pavement um, or, you know, or the beach when it's dry. So, um, yeah, so that's like heat you can feel. It's just like plain old heat. And that heat kind of radiates up and, um, you know, kind of makes it hot all around. Mm-hmm. But when... Mm-hmm. But when solar radiation falls on on plants, on living plants, that heat, that solar energy is like created, it turns into vapor. You know, the tree, the plant takes it in and it, um, it, it releases it as, as vapor, which mm-hmm. removes energy from the system and cools it through the moisture. So that's an important cooling mechanism it, it becomes what's called latent heat so that that it kind of moves through the through the atmosphere and ultimately there's condensation which releases the heat but generally that heat is higher up in the atmosphere so that it doesn't really affect you know it, it has a different effect it's radiated out back outward mm-hmm. so um but where the the rainfall comes in is that there's this theory that's very compelling called the biotic pump. So when you have all these trees transpiring, it creates a low pressure zone, which means you're pulling in air from elsewhere and you're pulling in moist air. So, mm-hmm. so um, this answers the question of, okay, okay, we understand the large water cycle so that what evaporates from the ocean makes its way and becomes rain. And that makes mm-hmm. sense when you're near the ocean, but but so the theory is that that the the pumping the biotic pump of the of the living trees is drawing moisture in from the coast and that's how you get rain in you know it, it draws it in so forested areas and areas in between um, get that rain and okay. yeah so so it's it's really interesting and when you start looking at places that are experiencing drought and heat waves that never had before. Often you can, if you explore, like in, in Russia, which has had heat waves and drought, that this may be connected to extensive deforestation mm-hmm. in, um, in that region. Yeah, and this is, this is a fascinating topic just because I'm, I'm such a plant person and a landscape person but um, um, I also read and I was really interested to read about the experience in Brazil um, and I can't remember which city was it Sao Paulo or was it um, oh it was Rio de Janeiro which here, you know right. has been on our minds lately with the Olympics yeah. and the way that they deforested everything and then ran out of water but then had the foresight to make that connection and reforested that and that was in the 1800s yes yes it was it was extraordinary that that the the king saw what was going on and then hired i forget the fellow's name uh, some somebody to reforest and and this 
Longfellow hired a bunch of slaves that went around planting trees. And right. the forest came back, and then the water came back. So we have this, this tale, um, this kind of, you know, true story of, of how this can work. So that's really important to know. Mm-hmm. And keep that in mind as we also see the bad news of a lot of deforestation that is taking place all over, including in the Amazon. Right. And so one of the other things that struck me about your book was the different timescales that we're talking about. So you spend some time talking about Australia and how it was inhabited and, um, and how the different peoples did the wrong thing to the land there to create this uh, degraded soil. And now we've got these regenerative farmers coming in and doing the right things to try and return it. Um, we, I think you also talk about that in the context of the U.S., but you all, you also, uh, in one of the end chapters, you talk about this happening in Africa and how that impact is happening, the, the positive change is happening really, really quickly. So, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so one of the things, I didn't have the chance to go to Australia, but I talked to a lot of people there, so I'm happy to talk about that. And the, the basic gist you know, to follow up on what you're saying is that basically since we humans started tilling the land and practicing agriculture, and maybe even before, I don't know what humans did before, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, we've been, we've been having negative consequences. But because, you know, when our machines get bigger and our population gets bigger, you know, we have a greater opportunity to mess things up. But mm-hmm. the fortunate thing is that people are looking at how we can restore it because you just the, the we we can't do that and it's important for us mm-hmm. to know that. And one of the examples is in Zimbabwe where um that's the where the Africa Center for Holistic Management is and holistic management is the larger framework that informs the work of the the ranchers in Chihuahua. It's the use of it, it often employs the use of livestock for large-scale large scale land restoration. And mm-hmm. so Alan Savory is the one who developed that, um, mm-hmm. that program, and he is Zimbabwean, and so he, um, this is the, the demonstration center. So one thing that was very powerful was to actually see the land that was restored and to see that in the context of near, nearby land, and the, the, the water is staying in the on the land. I mean, they, they, the river is um, running full, full year round now, and mm-hmm. it also runs farther up, more than a kilometer right. farther than in living memory. And that was important wow. to see. Um, then I had the chance to visit a few of the villages that the Africa Center is working with. And this was really, really powerful. So these people in these villages are living a kind of poverty that you or I could just never even imagine. I mean, it's a poor country. It's a poorly run country. It's a country with very well-educated people. It's a fascinating country. So these people in, in villages were having a really, really hard time because of the lack of water and the, the land degradation there. So, I mean, just, 
you know, the land was drying out and they had so many problems, uh, like they, they would have to bring their, their cattle, which represented like all of their wealth, to mm-hmm. long distances to find water and to find forage, and then they mm-hmm. would face the challenges of, of, other, of um, lions and other predators. Mm-hmm. And, anyways, it was really, really hard. And, mm-hmm. um, and they, their crops weren't growing, so they were dependent on food aid. So mm-hmm. with the Africa Center, what they did was they would pool their cattle together because each family might own one or two animals and so that they would ensure that each person's land, the community crop land and then the little plots that individual families had, every bit of land would receive some animal impact, which means the waste would be would would create would help fertilize and add carbon, and then all the other impacts that the animals have, their hoofs would press in decaying plant matter so it could be broken down back into the soil, and they would press in seeds, and they, they would also kind of create little pools for what their hoofs would, for water mm-hmm. to pool. So all these, you know, kind of all these different impacts together really changed the land so that they were able to retain water and grow crops. So whereas they might have had enough for, like, like their, their season for crop growing might, be, um, might have been two months of, out of the year, and then they would be dependent on food aid. Now it's seven months. And with seven months, they were able to, you know, like, you know, dry out grains, and they were able to support themselves. So these right. people were able to get off food aid and, you know, be self-supporting and self-sustaining. And that just, you know, was incredible to see. And they were just yeah. so happy. And, and you know, the implications go all the way through their lives. So um, for a, a while, when things were really bad, they weren't able to send their children to school because they didn't have the nourishment to get to school back. So right. th- wow. things like that, yeah. Yeah, that's really powerful, really powerful. And I think you talked in that chapter about the ants and how much of a problem they were. Oh, <laughs> that yeah. Gary. Yeah, that just seemed like, you know, so emblematic of what they were dealing with. Like, you know, like when things can't get worse, they actually, when, when you think th- things can't get worse, <laughs> they do. So yeah. with, when the land, the rivers and the land started drying out, um, in came this kind of opportunistic species that had always been there, but now they they had the kind of conditions that they thrived on, which was mm-hmm. bare, dry soil. And the, these were these ants that that were biting ants, and so people had to if like wear shoes all the time, or if they didn't have shoes because many couldn't afford them they would put plastic bags on their feet so that yeah. they wouldn't get bitten by ants. And it was, it was quite a special moment when I was having a tour of one of the villages, a village called Sianyanga, which is way off any main road. So um, we were taking a tour, and my, my guide, um, a Balbina is her name, she said, look, an ant, and she pointed, and there was this, like, you know, like, harmless looking little tiny insect 
And she, she said, I'm so glad to show it to you. Now that we don't have bare soil, uh, we, we hardly see them anymore. So, wow. you know, and then it, it was also interesting. I, I, I looked around and I noticed that all the women who I was walking with were wearing sandals, something that they would not have dared to do even, you know, five, six years ago because, because of the threat of those ants. So, yeah, yeah so that was, that was yeah. definitely. And that right there is just so much hope. If they can, in a, five, in a time span of five years, they can turn their land around, then that yeah. gives me hope that we can do things for our land here in California oh or United States. My goodness. So in Chihuahua, Mexico, they get a little more rainfall. So they were seeing a difference. I think it just took a couple of years even to get to where they wanted to go. Mm-hmm. Um, here in Vermont, there's a fellow who is improving his land with sheep man- mm-hmm. by holistically managing sheep. And he said that the very first year, they had five times as much hay as they had previously. Okay. I mean, wow. that's how fast. And even in Zimbabwe, at um, there was a three-year period that they were monitoring a few sites, a few areas, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. even though it was a time of drought, mm-hmm. it, they saw a tremendous improvement within three years. I think it was like 2006 wow. to 2009. So it's all a matter of, of what you do with the resources that, that you have, namely making, the as Alan Savory will say, it's not how much rain you get. It's about making that rainfall effective. Right. Right. Wow. Well, it's an amazing book, Judith. You should be really, really proud of it. And I'm so grateful for you to bringing this to light because it's, it's just it's just powerful and eye-opening stuff. And I'm really glad that you did it. So well done. It's really oh, good. Oh, thank you so much, Diane. You're welcome. Thanks so much, Judith. And... Um, so look out for Judith's book, uh, Water in Plain Sight, um, Hope for a Thirsty World. It's available at your local bookseller and also on your online retailers. Thanks for listening to the Earth Friendly Homeowner Podcast. Let us know if you have any questions or comments on our website at earthfriendlyhomeowner.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and we would love for you to give us a review of the podcast. 